0: I'm Alice Living, best-selling author, personal trainer, and your host of Give Me Strength. What makes a strong person to you? Could it be the kilograms on your deadlift, the miles you're able to run, or is it as simple as saying how you feel? An inner feeling of strength that's there regardless of your fitness abilities. Each week, I'll be looking into this concept, asking extraordinary women about their ever-evolving relationship with exercise and how their experiences have shaped who they are today. Together, we'll discuss the positives of living a stronger life, both physically and mentally, in the hope that we can inspire you to do the same. Welcome to Give Me Strength. With most of my guests, I do a long introduction of all of their incredible achievements. But with my next guest, I'm going to hold off because I almost feel that I don't have the words to truly convey who and what she is. So I am simply going to introduce my next guest as the incredible lady named Martine Wright. Her story, her courage, her tenacity and her message, accompanied with her wicked sense of humour, will unfold throughout our conversation. And all I can say is that I am truly honoured to have her with me today so hello welcome <laughs> That's a real
1: introduction <laughs>
0: so i thought we'd get started on july the 7th 2005 um obviously your life changed irrevocably and having listened to your book which, which we were just speaking about the way that you talk about your story the way that you recount it is quite simply remarkable devastatingly sad but also incredibly inspiring can you just talk me through that morning and what you remember
1: yeah. I mean, I, I, I sort of recount it now and I can't quite believe that it's, it's 14 years ago. You mm. know, it's, it actually seems like yesterday. And I describe it as quite a normal morning, really. Uh, but I suppose it wasn't normal, really, because, because what had happened, but also the day before. So mm. the day before was the 6th of July. And that was the day that we all found out that London had won the Olympic and Paralympic bid. And that was the whole reason why I was late. That morning, because mm. I'd been out celebrating with friends the night before. I'm a, I don't know, if, from my accent, I'm a, I'm a true Londoner. I'm, I'm what you call a bowbell cockney, and I was born in the city uh, of London. Mm. So when that announcement happens mm. that day on the sixth, I was just. Absolutely, well, so proud, yeah, amazed, course. and and so excited. Um, hence, why I was late that morning. I, I pressed my snooze button and then ran for my train like I normally do. And because of certain things that were happening on on the Northern Line, actual signal failures, I had to change my route that morning. And I got on a Circle Line train, and I, it was at Moorgate. And I ran up the escalator. I remember this, and I remember seeing that tube just come in to the station mm. and I thought what a result. Mm. And I just sat there and put my head in the paper reading everything about what was going to happen in 2012 mm. and uh, the Olympics and Paralympics coming coming to London. Mm. I don't remember looking around at any passengers. I, I had the feeling people were getting on and off and lots of people got mm. on and off at Liverpool Street but I was just reading every single inch mm. of this paper and I remember thinking... Probably about thirty seconds before before the explosion happened, I remember thinking i 've got to get tickets to this in london i 've got to get tickets. This is going to be absolutely huge, and you know, fourteen years on i didn 't get a ticket you were there. I actually was an athlete <laughs> yeah. taking part in two thousand and twelve <laughs> but yes, th- then, when it was this tunnel and then the explosion happened, again, I just thought it was a, a crash, obviously your initial initial reaction. Mm and i i can't remember any sound first of all but i remember a big white flash in front of my eyes mm. and i um describe it sometimes from a you know a cartoon tom and jerry cartoon when someone comes up and and smacks a character i don't know with a frying pan or something and you mm. feel like you're just going from left to right mm. you know um and then that feeling went and then the light went and then i was just sat in in what didn't look like <laughs> A carriage, it Mm. was just, you know, smoke everywhere and electrical and screams. Mm. And I'd been actually swung round 90 degrees. So I actually, I think, got the bomb from both sides. So Mm. it forced me round. And as a result of that, both my legs were mangled in the end of the tube carriage. Mm. I didn't realise that at the time. I was Mm. trying to get out. I was down there for an hour and a quarter, apparently. You were the
0: last to come out, weren't you?
1: Um, Yeah. And this, my guardian angel who, uh, obviously this is a podcast, you can't see, but I have a, have a scar on my mm. on my arm mm. which looks like a pair of lips. And this is, I believe, from whoever was looking after me that day. Many people were looking after me that day. Mm. But my guardian angel was Liz, Liz, yeah. Liz Kenworthy, and she was the off-duty policewoman. And she came through um, to the carriage, and I can't imagine what she was fa- faced with. Mm. And she gave me tourniquets to put round both my legs this was all very surreal I was still conscious at the time I felt like something it reminded me of a Sunday afternoon in my house at home <laughs> watching a John Wayne western that I used to do with my dad you know because they're shot and then suddenly someone a cowboy gives them a belt and then they put it around their legs and mm. that's what was going through my mind um I don't remember the pain what what I do remember is the feeling of Trying to tell my family that that I was okay. I mean, all I kept saying to Liz was, "My name is Martin Wright. Please tell my mum and dad I'm okay." But the irony it was that I wasn't. Yeah, I wasn't okay. Mm. I was on the verge of um, losing my life. So.
0: Mm. One of the most incredible parts of that first chapter for me was, um, despite the trauma that you had suffered personally and the situation that you were you found yourself in you describe how your internal voice was almost telling you and willing yourself not to die and you sort of repeat it quite, quite a lot in, in that first chapter, I'm not going to die, mm. I'm not going to die. And it's a real example of the power of the mind that you were so convinced that that wasn't going to happen to you. Had you always been that, that mentally strong or was it just in that moment you just found this, this courage to say, this isn't going to happen to me?
1: Um, I never, I mean... You, you never ever think in your in your wildest nightmares that you would ever be in that no, situation. Obviously. So I'd never really thought about mm. a, a, any of that situation. It's a bit like the question now that, you know, I might say to you, you know, do you think you'd be able to, 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 mm. to, to deal with that? And I don't think anyone can answer that until mm. until you're in that situation. But I do think I've always been more half full girl than, than half, half empty. And obviously that situation... You know, I I sort of liken it. I call it the 7-7 club, right? Mm. So it's a club that you would never, ever want to belong to. Mm. But as a result of belonging to that, you have this deep strength and understanding and respect and love for the people that were involved that day. And again, you didn't have to be necessarily on that carriage or on that tube, there were so many people involved that day. And, um, I mean, all I have to do is Andy that was next to me, mm. you know. He was supporting me. I was supporting, yeah. supporting him. you know, all I have to do is look into his eyes when I meet him. And we don't see each other on, on a monthly basis or mm. maybe even a yearly basis sometimes mm. now. But all you have to do is see those people and you have this deep understanding of each other. So it's sort it's, of, you know the the seven seven but yes I suppose I've I've always been positive but I remember very early on m- my brother saying to me in hospital after I came out of this coma after eight days and found out you know that both my legs had had, had been amputated that was when it was you know why me why me and yeah. uh, my bro- my brother said to me he said look you know this is going to sound weird but out of three of us and I have our older brother and sister mm-hmm. Tracy and Grant he said, "Out of three of this, I feel terrible for saying this, but I think you're the only one with the strength that could have de- dealt mm. with this, Martine." And it was quite a lot to take in in the beginning. That was that was that was too much, yeah. <laughs> a bit too much. But when I look back now, the amount of strength that mm. that really gave me, and mm. you know, yeah, I mean, I well up now thinking about it. The amount of love and support I got mm. on, on those sort of situations. Mm really got me through to the next day because that was when you were living from hour to hour Mm. to to day to day and not knowing what was going to go on.
0: I also think one of the most remarkable things about that first chapter is that despite your injuries, you actually speak about caring for others when you were in that situation. And, you know, the man that was next to you that was being repeatedly electrocuted and the selflessness that you offered him, despite your own injuries, was so brave. Can you just tell me about kind of what drove you to... I guess give yourself to others first before even thinking what what's going
1: on with me. Well, I think um, yeah, that was Andy, Andy Brown, and again, you know, we had no, we had, we were strangers next to each other, Mm. and he was being, you know, uh, electrocuted, but he actually knew what had happened. He he was ex RAF. Mm. He lost both his legs above the knee, Uh, below the knee. Sorry, he's he's got he's got both his knees, but he was calming me. We were touching each other absolutely touching each other and i only knew that he had been rescued when i fell back because we were leaning against each other yeah. and when he, the paramedics and the firemen uh, and women took him out that was when i had a sense of i was alone mm-hmm. i mean i was with liz but i i i was the last the last person there but again it's it's that situation and um it's interesting you you say that on the tube but i felt like that really that sort of helping other people and the mutual respect we all had for each other Mm. the people that were on that tube Mm. and the images we saw and the memories that we have and the you know the 52 people that 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 lost their lives Mm. they will always be in the forefront of our hearts and minds you know but it was actually when I got to hospital that I think I really supported um, other people and other people supported me. Yeah. And that was to do with, I think, the acceptance or um, I didn't realise that I was the most injured female survivor. And when I did define that out, I did think, why? Why?" Yeah. I'm actually quite a nice person. Why? Why is this happening? And to you me? said that in your book, didn't you, you say I know, yeah. And it, and it is. And obviously, you do think that, mm. you know. I'm always a happy go lucky person, you know. And, um, you know, you do think, why me? Why me? But when I started to meet the other victims of, of that day, I realised that I was more physically injured as them, but psychologically, I was stronger. And I think. Mm that gave, I felt like I had a responsibility. I had a responsibility to support and love and and be there throughout hospital Mm. with other fellow victims. And Mm. and they felt that exact Mm. loyalty and respect for me. Mm. And it was that realisation that, yes, I might have lost both my legs above the knee, I might have nearly lost my arm, Mm. but I was strong enough to say to people, whether it was just holding someone's hand, I remember... Philip, who was um, a lovely man, professor, very clever man, mm. huge, six foot six or something. And he lost one leg. He was on the Piccadilly line and he was really struggling with it. He was the mm. provider for his family, very traditional Greek Cypriot man, mm. you know, and he was really struggling. And I remember holding his hand so much when he was in bed and saying, we're going to get through this, Philip. We are going to get through this. And that gave me strength as well, you know, because in any situation, if you feel like you have that shared understanding yeah. and that you're doing something you're good for someone else. Well, yeah. yeah, which is so important. Just what, one
0: thing that I found refreshingly honest was, was that you do admit that you felt that why me? you know, because for a lot of people, I think they want you to automatically flick that positivity switch and be like, right, my life has changed, but I'm going to do loads of good now. But actually like hearing about those moments when you're in hospital and you had those sort of why me, you actually say in the book at one point you thought your life was over. And I think this kind of honesty was actually quite refreshing to read in that you went to that really, really dark place, but you were able to also bring yourself back out of it. And of course, with the support of your mum, and I just wondered if you could talk about that moment that even if I think about it now, when I was when I was listening to your book, I was sobbing. But just that moment with your mum, which which felt like a bit of a light bulb moment, I, I think for you, didn't it?
1: Oh, definitely. I mean, I think you forget. You know, you forget that they uh, they didn't find me for forty eight hours as well. Mm. So you know, I had the police around my flat, taking DNA from my hairbrush and things like that, mm. and trying to to identify. The, you know, other victims that mm. had that, that, that died that day um, and then willing to try and find me. And they did finally find me 48 mm. hours later. And then they were put into this room with other families and, you know, the hospital Royal London was saying, look, we've only only got three identified survivors. There were 22 families there mm. wanting those three people to be their loved ones. Yeah. So, you know, I never, ever underestimate what my family went through and what friends go through. Mm. And when these attacks happen again and they do you know we all wake up in the morning and the newscaster's talking in a certain certain way of course my my first thoughts go out to the victims but immediately it's to the families because they're the ones that are having to sit there and take it all in a lot of the time before we've even woken up Mm -hmm. so this is what my family happened to eight eight days i was i was in a coma for and they had to go through that whole thing of finding me but also seeing the state of me basically my my injuries um, and you weren't even
0: recognizable were you when so you, there was a moment no, when your brother no. and sister
1: came in and they didn't even no 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 so this is what happened so so uh, they said the police actually knew it was me because of um I have a mole on my on my left arm so they knew it was me but they needed someone to to identify me mm. so my brother and sister went in, first of all, and I think that, that shows how upset my mum and dad were at that, mm. at that time. And they apparently came in and looked at me, their youngest sister, and said, no, that's not my Because apparently I looked so, my face was swollen from the mm. impact. You know, I had sort of dark skin from all the, all the, all the smoke. Um, obviously, I had tubes everywhere. And they said, no, no it wasn't me. And the police knew it was me, so they said, well, there must be someone else. They they couldn't say that. Is there someone else that can come in and identify? And they said, yes, you know, our mum will come in. And, uh, yeah, my mum come in and looked at me and said, yes, that is Martine, Mm -hmm. through her eyebrows and I do think what was I doing with my eyebrows in 2005 was it really distinctive you know and yeah that's the way that, that they identified me but having to go through that as a family you know suddenly having that relief to go oh my, this is Martine this is yeah. my daughter you know my sister to look at you know her life what's going to happen She's she's lost both her legs so Yes that was a really tough time to get through, and I will say here you know there's there's so much control and so much influence you can have individually, so mm-hmm. like you asked me a minute ago you know, whether I was um positive mm-hmm. you know before all this, and I think I am, but there's no way that it's anyone can get through anything like this if they don't have mm. that support from mm. from their, their family and friends. And, yes, I really remember those poignant moments yeah. in the beginning. Um, I remember another incident, you know, with my dad. And he's a very traditional London, London man. And he turned around to me in tears, you know, a couple of weeks after I'd come out of my coma and said, you know, if if if, if you died, I would have died, you know. But, yes, the the poignant moment that I always remember... And it was a, a few weeks after it had all happened. And, you know, unfortunately, I was in hospital for, for a year. But like many people, I got superbugs. So I mm. got C. diff. Mm. And I was very weak. I went down to about six stones. So after, obviously, learning that I was, had no legs mm. and that could have lost my arm as well, I, I had this. And, and yeah, I felt like my. My life was over. I couldn't even look at myself in the mirror. I mean I look, didn't look at my face for for 2 months. Mm. And I did have scars all over it and my nieces and nephews say now when they came in to see me it wasn't that I had no legs that was scaring them. It was actually the whites of my eyes were completely red full full of blood from oh the gosh. explosion of the bomb.
0: Yeah.
1: So I, you know, regarding body, self-image, I I didn't have the strength then to to carry on. And, of course, all I kept doing is looking down in this bed and, to be honest, feeling sorry for myself, feeling like my life is over. I've got no legs. I had Mm -hmm. half the body of what Mm -hmm. I used to, you know. And I remember my mum grabbing hold of my face after I remember I was in bed shaking my head going, I've got no legs, mum, I've got no legs, I've got no legs. And she just grabbed hold of my face mm. and looked into my eyes and she said, but Martine, you are still here. Mm. And you didn't get a knock on the head, and meaning that, you know, I was still Martine, I didn't get a brain injury, I didn't die. And she said, and you can get new legs. And she was mm. squeezing my face and looking into my eyes as I was saying that. And all those moments, all those moments gave me that, little bit that little bit to get to the next day and unfortunately I mean I'm sure people that li- listening to this you know there's there's people out there that have been through something equally tragic more tragic than something like that and you, you just can't not go through those stages you need to get through those really bad days in yeah. order to get to the good days uh, but there's no no doubt at all that my family got me through mm. but also you know it was the the memories of of what happened that day, yeah. all those people that that put their lives at, at risk this is mm. this is what happens it's the most selfish act, and then the most selfless acts yeah. people are out there helping each other, but really. It's those 52 people, those 52 people that died that day.
0: Because you didn't know at the start. I think your family kept a lot from you, didn't they? I and mean, yeah. you actually found out how, how much later that that, that that many people had died.
1: Yeah, well, that was the turning point, really. You know, people, again, you know, I think people that have been through something, a big change in their life. You know, I think there is a turning point. Mm. I do believe we're faced with many turning points every day of our lives, mm-hmm. but... I do believe that there is, is, is one big turning point and, yeah, I didn't know. I had no idea that 52 people had died. I had, I mean, I thought I had no idea that it was a bomb. But two weeks after, I remember the sister of the ward, uh, Harrison Ward in, in Royal London, came in and they sat me down with my family and they told me that it was a bomb and I wasn't surprised. And you know you must take information in, I think, when you're unconscious, you know. Mm. I think that truly must have happened mm-hmm. because I said I know. But I know I didn't know on that tube when it happened. I thought that was a crash because when I saw people being evacuated, I didn't yeah. understand how how people could be evacuated if, if they were in this crash as well, yeah. not realising that it was just contained to, to mm. our carriage. <laughs> so uh, I think that was the turning point, And the turning point came on a day... And I described this because actually this was it was probably about a month after it had all happened. And I was actually supposed to be chief bridesmaid to my best friend, Alex, that day. You know, I'd only tried on the dress that had the last fitting and things like that. Mm-hmm. Had the hen night, I had to organise hen night mm-hmm. a week before uh, the bombings happened. But I wasn't. Prize made on that day. I was strong enough for the first time to go to the gym physio, and I remember going into this room and and seeing all manner of different people. And I saw Jeanette, who's one of my very good friends now. I spent and my twin. She sounds amazing. Yeah, she's black. I'm white, but we're twins. We're twins. (laughs) We're twins. Yes, we spent. She is an amazing lady. Amazing lady, Mm. and she's a big inspiration for me. And we spent a year in hospital, and uh, Jeanette lost both her legs, but also both her arms Mm. through meningitis. Um, she's actually on the volleyball team now. She knits, she sails. You need to talk to her, Alice, as well. She sails amazing. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so so I met her. I met other victims of the bombings. And as I said before, they weren't as physically injured as me. And this was the day that I found out how many people died that day. Mm. And that was 52 people that had been killed. And I had no idea at all before that point that mm. those people had been killed. And that was a really a realisation, a realisation of how lucky, how lucky I was Mm. and a realisation that my life wasn't over because I was sat in that hospital bed and I know I might not have had any legs at that point but I had a choice, I had a choice Mm. to live my life Mm. and that really was... yes. I suppose the turning point and that's why I will never forget those 52 people because each and every one of those people and their families because I've met their families as well have given me and still give me strength every every day because I just think it was a it was a lottery an absolute lottery on that tube so yes that was my turning point and that was when I decided right I've got to discover I suppose who I am I've got to find out who I am I've got to face my demons I've got to and it's that acceptance as well that
0: you discuss in the book, that sort of like, This is where I am now and I'm just gonna I'm just gonna work with it and I'm gonna make the best of, of the situation that I'm in. Yes. And yeah. that sense of positivity that I got from it really felt like from that moment, you you did have a big sort of turnaround in terms of coming out from from what had been a really dark time to being like, right, and you, you seem like you just got a bit of fire in your belly to
1: Yeah. I mean, um again, you know, it's it's ups and downs as well. So course, yes, I yeah. did. I felt like like I can go on. I am going to go off and rediscover mm. who I am again. And and but then you you do have a day like that, and then the next day, you know, I'll see an image. Or I remember being quite obsessed with two images. One image was someone running for a bus. Okay, because I used to run for a bus the whole time. <laughs> it's weird what you remember. And number two is looking at someone walking on their mobile phone having no sort of not being aware of what's around them what they're doing whereas for me especially back then I I couldn't do that I couldn't walk and talk at the same time you know Mm. but then it was really then looking at those images and, and and looking at that and saying okay I might not be able to do that as well as well as I did before but imagine if I could go off and fly a plane I know on my own you know and this is where all those things you know really really put me back together again yeah and and I found out who I was again
0: and you talk about um how you discuss being newly disabled and some of the challenges that um it imposed but also not accepting that label which I thought was really interesting and there was the experience in the disabled toilet with the bin which, which just seems so something that obviously like i would never think about but it just seems so obvious now having read your book that there are so many things that can that can crop up as as issues and it just seems like sometimes that 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 was an initial challenge for you and i guess you talk about relearning sort of everyday behaviors and not allowing yourself to be defined and limited by what had happened to you but can you talk me through that that journey yeah i mean um
1: again I never dreamt in my worst nightmares that I would be sat where I I was. But as I said, I had that acceptance that Mm. this has happened and I am a lucky one. Mm -hmm. I have not lost my life. I am still here. Therefore, Mm. I need to go off and discover who I was again. And um, I obviously made lots of friends in in hospital. And as I said, we all belong to this 7-7 club. And and lots of my fellow victims, what, what they did is they actually went back to their previous jobs. Now, I don't think I was strong enough to do that because you know people say god you've done amazing things and I, I sort of say well i don't know whether i took the easy way out actually mm. because i did try and get, go back to work so my work were, were absolutely brilliant and they supported me you know for many years and so i had a loyalty to them and i thought right no, i am I, I used to love my job i was an international marketing manager flying around the world you know and i thought no i want my Job back, and um, I remember that day of going back into the office and sitting sitting behind the desk that I sat behind previously three years earlier. And funny enough, I said I make a joke that the printer was right next to my desk, and the coffee machine was right next to my desk as well. Whereas you know, I used to have to walk miles for it. I was like, oh, got my own coffee machine and printer. But it took all, all of about two minutes for me to sit behind this desk and look around the room. I burst out crying and think, why am I here? I can't do this. I cannot do the same as what I did before. Because for me, all that pain and that horrible, you know, the worst situation that you could ever think of, to go through that and go back to do what I was before, I just couldn't get my head around it. Mm. And I think you needed to be stronger, actually, than me. And I know people that are stronger than me. To, to be able to do that and, and to be able to go back and do their job the way that they were before, even though they felt like that they were someone different. So, as a result of that belief, I, I thought, right, well, I've got to go off and discover who, who I am again. And um, yes, I was in the Douglas Bardi unit at Queen Mary's Hospital. And I remember my social worker, Carol uh, Graves, who, who came to me and she said, Have you seen this? You know, and it was like, you know, go to South Africa, get a flying scholarship applied for a flying scholarship, which wasn't easy at all, and, you know, learn to fly. And I've always, always, I mean, that's always been on my bucket list to try and do, but obviously never had the opportunity to do it, never had the time to do it. And I did, and, and I applied for this scholarship. I had to a very big interview, but suddenly I was turning around to my mum and dad after being in hospital 366 days. I then turned around to them and went, by the way, I'm going to South Africa in two months' time to go and learn to fly in planes. You know, as you can imagine, my mum just went, poof, like that, it was like, <laughs> fainted on the floor. Like, no, I'm serious, you know, you know we've wrapped you up in cotton wool oh. for the last year. Yeah, But I did, and I went off and um, did 52 hours of flying, and it was all... To do with rediscovering myself and concentrating on things I could do. Because that's the worst thing sometimes. I think, again, when you go through something traumatic, for me, the hardest thing to deal with was memories. Mm. The memories of how I used to do things and the memories of who I once was. Mm. So all these things, whether it was skiing, whether it was being thrown around the dance floor by the lovely Ian Waite and Strictly Come Dancing, all those things... I knew I had to do in order to, to rediscover yeah. who I was again.
0: We'll be back after this. I mean, I almost fell off my chair when you <laughs> when I got to that bit in the book. I always oh, fall she's off got my through. Chair. She's got through this bit, and now she's actually she's what she's going to be a pilot in oh, South no. Africa. But
1: I loved that part. It was really because you you had fun. You were oh, it was amazing, amazing experience. I mean, again, amazing for just yeah, just flying a plane over a zebra or, or a family of blue whales oh my goodness I, I have this photo one, and my, my husband or my boyfriend Nick at the time he was Jane, my boyfriend at the time he was really worried about the prospect <laughs> of me flying plane and I remember that day you know because he knows that I get distracted sometimes you know <laughs> And um, I remember that day seeing this family of blue whales, two babies and two adults, and immediately I just went to my instructor, you have control, <gasps> you have control, you know, and got the camera out. And, mm-hmm. and so it was amazing to do that, but amazing to look over after flying a plane on your own you know you know like when you when you passed your your driving test mm-hmm. you're slightly excited and then suddenly you look over and you're flying a plane and the instructor isn't there and you have to land it on a grass runway but it gave me so much more and than just obviously the, flying a plane yeah. it, it was the independence it was you know as I said I spent 366 days in hospital and in order to So again, you know, get that strength, get that independence. It was six weeks, six weeks away. And there were times in that six weeks you probably got from my book. Mm. I did struggle. You Mm. know, it was quite emotional being away from our family, but I knew it was something that I had to do. And, yeah, I did face, I think, my demons and stuff Mm. like that, some of my demons away, because really... That was the first time I really was away from my comfort zone yeah. in the new person that I was. Because you talk
0: about always becoming a little bit institutionalized in that when you were in hospital for that for that amount of time it was totally normal to not have any legs yeah. or, or be you know yeah, no, be exactly. missing an arm or something that that felt very very normal and that became your new normal but then to sort of step outside into the real world and be living amongst other people and going to South Africa and becoming a pilot what I felt from your book was this was suddenly actually reality, and and getting used to your new reality, yeah. and and how you manage that was just so inspiring.
1: What all those things taught me to do is believe, is have that belief mm. that things can get better, mm. and actually you put your mind to anything. You can achieve anything you want to. Mm. And all those things taught me that because I was doing things that I never, ever thought possible, never, ever thought I'd have an opportunity to ever do in my life. And what that gave me, the strength that it gave me and the belief, the belief in myself, the belief in the future was huge, Mm. you know. And that's what gets you through, is, is the belief. But that it doesn't always come from you individually. It obviously mm-hmm. comes from other people as well, your family and friends and things. Of course.
0: So going on to sport. So you were actually quite a sporty kid, weren't you, growing up? You always loved sport, which I thought was amazing. But sport has now become one of your main loves. And I just wondered if you could tell me a little bit about that journey into playing professional sport.
1: Yes. So I am part of the um, Great Britain sitting volleyball team. Mm-hmm. And I did take part in the 2012 uh, Paralympics. And how did I get into it? Well, I did return to work, as I said, and and I found that very hard. So I left there, but I was looking. I was looking to do something else. But I was, and I still am, a very ambitious lady. I'd never have guessed. <laughs> <laughs> I'd never have really? guessed. <laughs> um, and, you know, I really missed that drive and mm-hmm. I really missed that ambition that I used to feel at work. So in in 2008 I was invited to go along to a Paralympic potential day which was in the guise of the amputee games it was only up the road from East Stoke Mandeville the birthplace of the Paralympics and uh, went there and tried all different sports but I fell in love with sitting volleyball and mm. uh, there wasn't a women's team put together at that point So actually, I started playing wheelchair tennis quite a lot, but I found it quite lonely. I found it quite lonely as a sport. I'm quite and you know, as you said, I was sporty at school. Universities, team sports were really you know my my thing so I started playing for a local club and local, it means 50 miles within sitting volleyball local. That is your local club is 50 miles away. But then I got a call in the end of 2009 to say that they were doing trials for the first ever women's GB sitting volleyball team and whether I wanted to go along. So I did. And then I was suddenly part of this amazing, amazing group of winning amazing journey. Mm. Um, And, you know, I'm a true, true believer that sport has... The power of sport has completely healed me. Mm. And I don't mean that's just picking out the ball. I think that's everything in it. Mm. So sport, you know, has given me so much on, on, I suppose, a physical, emotional and psychological level. Mm. So physically it's got me fit, but emotionally, you know, to, to be able to get on that court with similar people that have been through similar things to me mm. got a very sick sense of humor as well as we all do um, on that on that court but that real deep understanding of each other whether it's our disabilities or whether it's our emotional state or our psychological mm. states and you know for me the power of sport and the belief i mentioned i said about the belief mm. sport has taught me and being part of the paralympics and being part of the team has made me realised that for me, I couldn't have done anything to stop me being involved in what happened that day on the 7 7 bombings. Because I believe that that was the start of a journey that I was always meant to make. And that journey was to go back to my hometown of London mm. after leaving on such a negative. I live in Hertfordshire mm. now, I still love London. Mm-hmm. But after, you know, being involved that day, I left after. Being late that morning as a result of, mm. of of what's happened, you know, the whole psychological side of it sport gave me a dream, gave me a goal, but really took me on that journey back mm. to my hometown in London twenty twelve to say, you know, I felt like I'd done a huge a huge sort of circle yeah. from reading that paper mm. that morning to then thirty seconds later the explosion happened and me thinking seconds before I'm going to get tickets I'm going to get tickets to this mm. I'm going to get tickets and then embracing what happened to me and embracing my my number seven because now that's your lucky number yes on the, on the journey of discovering sport I then decided that I wasn't going to be scared of what happened to me that day and the memories weren't going to fill me with dread the memories were going to fill me with optimism with excitement with Anything is possible. That's what it's going to fill me with. And that's when I decided that I was going to embrace the number seven, make number seven my lucky number. Now, obviously, people think... I'm off my rocker because <laughs> it's like, Martin. You know, you do know you got blown up on seven seven. There
0: are too many weird coincidences, about like when you said, "Oh, we flew to somewhere on the seventh of
1: July." but well, like, the yeah yeah yeah. There's, there's, just... there's yeah. Again in the, in the book, this is why I truly believe it is fate. It's not mm. just all coincidence. And mm. I, I know you can look at things sometimes and relate things to to other things. But yeah, I mean, you know, down to yeah, our first ever. Um, competition we went to was was America, and that was in 2010 in Oklahoma. And yes, we flew out on the seventh of July. My son was due. I know on the seventh.
0: That bit, of I was July. like, oh my god, that just couldn't. You I, remember, couldn't I know. Write it. I, I
1: remember the doctor with a little. Well, anyone that's got pregnant goes to the doctor and, and she gets a little, he or she gets a little wheel out and mm. says, oh, when was, when, when was your last last cycle, right? Oh, And my, my, my doctor went, oh, you're due on the 7th of July. And my doctor knows me quite well. Yeah. I? Just, you're joking. You're joking. Anyway, he was late anyway, so he wasn't due on the 7th of July, he was due on the 16th. But all these coincidences, yes, even down to both my hospitals I spent a year in, mm. you know, the first place I trained Was my London local club that was behind Royal London Mm. Hospital. Down to training, we were training full-time at Roehampton University. Mm. Roehampton University is directly facing my hospital that I spent nine months trying to Mm. walk. I could literally see my window of my old room Mm. at the hospital Mm. from walking back from the sports hall. To go to the flats where we lived full time. And I mean, how did you
0: feel seeing that? That must have been so empowering that you were now
1: on this incredible journey. It just gave me that I don't know whether it is fate, whether it's coincidence, mm. but it ingrained that belief, that belief and that strength that doesn't matter how slow I walk that mm. morning, doesn't matter whether I I hit that snooze button, mm. it, it doesn't matter what does matter is what i've achieved since mm. and actually for me i feel like i was supposed to make that journey
0: yeah
1: that was that was my fate but i i do believe now you know we can sit there and, and you know debate whether there's fate or, or whether there's coincidence. Well, I, I, think
0: it's, I think it's a lot to do with who you are. Yeah. And I think you you can sit there and say, there are people stronger than me. There are, you know, may, maybe it's a coincidence, but actually underlying all of this and, and the biggest thing that I've taken away from you is actually your resilience is like nothing I've ever come across before. And it doesn't matter whether it is a coincidence or whether it's fate or not. You have managed to put, to bring that mindset about, and that is just so inspiring, empowering, and it's incredible to see. And even just like you're like annoyingly, this is a podcast because you're so expressive as a as a speaker <laughs> so as well. I but but like you are living and breathing that message it's not just something that you've had to drill into yourself as a kind of mantra that you say to yourself every day you are really embodying everything that you're saying and and i'm just totally in awe of that and i think that must that must be such an an amazing thing to have got to i wanted to ask you because not only were you juggling being a professional sportswoman you know if that's not challenging enough you were also a new mother to to quite a tiny little baby how did you find yourself juggling both of those things
1: it was very hard sometimes. Mm. Um, we got married in um, 2008, and then um, you know, three months later, I was I was pregnant. So I actually joined the team when Oscar was three months old. <laughs> so it was very difficult, and you know, my lovely husband Nick and my family, you know, were very very supportive. But joking aside, it was it was really hard sometimes. Mm. Um, whether it was he was up all night teething, or whether it was the guilt. And I had quite a lot of guilt of leaving, you know, I remember many mornings where Oscar was screaming his head off or we had sleepless nights, you know, and I was having to say goodbye to Nick for a week at a time, you know, say bye. And I remember getting into my car and driving the many, many miles that, that, I mean... You know, the first few years of training, all of us, we must have done about 4,000 miles in our in our car yeah. per year. And um, I remember just getting on the M25 and just crying because of the guilt that, that I felt. But now I have Oscar. Oscar's nine. And I must say, he is very, very proud of his mum and his dad and his family. And he has this... It's funny. Well, I don't think it's funny. People say it's not funny, Martin, because he's not surprising. But he has this belief and this loyalty for his family. He, he realises how important that support mm. is, family and friends. Mm. But I think he, he sort of has this optimism. I don't know whether that's come from whoever. I mean, I think it's all of us that it's come from. Mm. But he's an absolute joy. And I know he's very... I'm very proud of him, but... um one memory that I can't even recount without and I will hold the tears back and that was the you know life does not get better when you turn around to your mum and dads, mm. who are real traditionalists and say what are you doing in a couple of months time 'm about to come back in a palace because I'm getting an MBE you know for my outstanding contributions mm. for sport and um you know, that that is amazing, but I remember that morning, and Oscar just couldn't wait. He couldn't wait to get to Buckingham Palace. And he just kept asking, Is it gonna be the Queen, Mummy? Is it gonna be the Queen? And you don't know until you get there. And all he kept saying that morning, and I'm not like I had to tell him to stop saying it because I kept crying mm-hmm. and I kept having to reapply my makeup. <laughs> all he kept saying was, Mummy, I love you so much, and I'm so proud of you. Mummy, I love you so and he was only seven at the time. I think that... All of us have got a strength from this. Family, friends, Oscar. Mm. We've got a strength. We've got an understanding. You know, Oscar can't wait to tell people that his mummy's a Paralympian and that I've got robot legs. You know. It's, it's literally like, come round to the house, you know, there's the PlayStation, but come in here, because this is where my mum's got her robot legs. You know, oh, and we charge them up every night
0: and you know. And the teacher, he said there was one day when he came home he said, Mummy, my teacher's been talking about you
1: at school and saying how amazing you are. Oh, I know. <laughs> you know, we're obviously doing something, something right. But what what I'm saying is it's it's opened up a, a world. I feel like Oscar educates his friends. Mm. I feel like we've all got a responsibility to say. Disability, diversity is part of our society, Mm -hmm. but it's not restricting, it shouldn't be restricting Mm -hmm. in any way. And sometimes that adversity pushes you to do even more. So... Going back to your Paralympic team, you were training
0: loads, you were actually getting quite good, you were eating a lot of boiled eggs, (laughs) I remember reading, getting the protein in. And actually, at one time, it was described as an audacious dream for you guys to actually qualify for the Paralympics, which is crazy. How did you go from being like an ambitious athlete, and clearly you were that, but to then qualifying for the Paralympics?
1: Just the hard work, the the blood, sweat and tears, Mm. and the belief and the support... You know, people say, you know, I've made sacrifices or athletes say I've, I've, I've made sacrifices. The athletes don't make the sacrifices. Your family and your friends make the sacrifices or team me, mm, as, I, I know, as, I I, love as I call them. Yeah, Because there's no way that I would have been able to make this journey if it, if it, if it wasn't for them. Can you explain your team me? Because I love it. Yes, we all have a team me. And we're part of many people's teamies. I imagine. My team is made up of my family and my friends and my teammates and my physio. All those, uh, the NHS staff that have supported me, still supporting me, you know, over the last few years. You know, all those people are in my team E. And all these people have enabled me, well, put me back together again, but have enabled me to make these this amazing journey but what we need to realize is that we're actually in other people's team meets as well yes. so that's really important and i believe we can achieve anything with our team me. so for me to go to the paralympics yes we were first ever women's you know sitting volleyball teams to be put together. Some of us were athletic, some of us weren't. You know, I, I'd never touched a volleyball. I was very sporty before, but I'd never touched a volleyball in my life. I also and think your
0: are um, your competitive streak might have I'm not competitive
1: at all. <laughs> Gives you the <that> idea. <laughs> um so so to suddenly, you know, be on the floor. and lots of people think we play in the chair. We don't play in the chair. We no. play on the floor. It was actually first called Bumble. And that's what you loved about it, actually, was what you It was a liberating sport. Mm. You know, for someone quite reliant on a wheelchair or, or, you know, on on prosthetic legs for me, to be able to get on the floor and literally not be reliant on any piece of equipment Mm. and just use my body for the way that it's made is amazing. And I I, I say that the funny thing now is that I might not have any legs, but I'm actually the fastest player on court um, because my legs don't get in the way. You know, They actually call me the Flying Monkey. That is my nickname. And the Flying Monkey comes from the Wizard of Oz. My son's playing the Tin Man at the moment, the Wizard of Oz. It comes from the Flying Monkey is from the Wizard of Oz. So I have number seven on my jersey. As I said, I, I, I decided to embrace number seven quite a few years ago, many, many years ago, because that day is a big part of me. And also, I wanted to... It was a memory, really, for those 52 people that died. And as I said, they've given me strength every single day of of my life since. But it does remind me of the day that the kit arrived. I do remember we, as I said, are proud to say we are the first ever women's GB sitting Which volleyball team to be put together. Yeah. Quite a mouthful to say, <laughs> obviously. But I do remember the day the kit arrived and I you know we were we were slightly excited. But we all knew that we had to sit round a table and put our cases forward why we wanted numbers. I knew number seven was quite a popular number. Yeah, number seven's quite a popular number, isn't it? So I thought I might have a bit of a fight on my hands. And I remember going into this room and sitting around this table. All the numbers come up, you know, and then... I think it was our assistant coach, Karen, sort of said, Right, well, next one's number seven. Who wants number seven? So about five people put on their hands, and I was like, Oh. So someone sort of said, Well, I, I want number seven because it's my birthday. And I thought, well, that's actually quite a valid reason. Yeah. No. Then someone else sort of said, Oh, I, I want number seven because my dog died that day. And I'm quite a dog lover, I love dogs. And so I was like, Oh, you know, I'm really sorry, you know, about that. And then someone else sort of said, Oh, I got married that day. And then I sort of said, Well, I want number seven. Because I got blown up that day. And they all went, take it, take it, take it. Have the number seven, take it. So that was it. So that's why I've got number seven on my shirt. It's poignant. I, I would not have anything else on my shirt. Obviously, you know, there are so many amazing memories from 2012 Paralympics um, and Rio as well, but from London, from from my hometown. But there's one memory that will, I suppose, always stick out in my heart rather than my head. And that mm-hmm. was that was the opening ceremony yeah. of, of the Paralympics and it really reminded my team me and I've got a photo at home in my hallway this photo is from our first game and people say to me "And what was your favourite memory or what was your favourite photo you know have not so many photos mm. and I say oh, I'll show you my favourite photos in my hallway here it is and they're like well you're, you're not in it it's like, I know I'm not in it but do you know who those people are and this is my team me and my family from my first game mm. at the Paralympics, and, and our first game was against the Ukrainians, right? And they're um, third in the in in the world at the moment. And I remember going into the Excel arena. We were walking out or rolling out of this, this tunnel, and the biggest crowd we'd probably ever played to was about 450 people. We were walking out now in front of about 4,000 people. Huge mix of emotions, mm-hmm. but I couldn't wait to get on court, but I came out, and I was just in floods of tears because I looked over to my left... And I, don't, I need to show you the photo, but it's just the image of Oscar on my husband's head with a banner, and it says "Go, Mummy, Go." Uh, my mum is in tears. You can't even see my dad through the size of his banner. That is funny. But do you know why it was my favourite photo? Is because that was the moment. That was the moment that that was all about belief, and that was the moment of me looking up at that crowd as I came out of that tunnel. And look into my family and say, and my friends, they were everywhere, Mm. saying, look, we've been through tough times. Mm. I would never be here if it wasn't for you. And we've all done this. We've Mm. all got through it together. And we're doing all right. We're doing all right. And it was a real opportunity, you know, especially to my mum and dad to see their little girl, their little baby girl. They still can't get over the images of what I was in hospital, but what I want to try and show them now. Mm. And I have been trying to show them is life isn't over life is good and, and, and we're experiencing things now that we never ever thought possible and you your know. opportunities are only just beginning as well you know
0: in terms of like the things that you've gone on to achieve yeah. it's, it's yeah. incredible I'm
1: very very lucky you've, you have know.
0: you've overcome a lot and you've overcome probably some of life's biggest challenges that it can throw at you
1: what now challenges you my son, my nine-year-old. <laughs> I think everyone says that. <laughs> I mean, I'm 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 very lucky that my life is is very varied. You know, it's, it's never an average average day for me. Mm. Big challenge is the moment is 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 we are looking as a team to go to Tokyo. So we didn't qualify for Rio. That was a real tough one mm. for us, and that was to do with funding as well. That's been really hard, like many competitive sports. Mm. I was lucky enough to to end up going anyway as a reporter for, nice. for Channel Four. I can't believe they gave me a, a microphone to put just freely use, and that was amazing to see that on that side. You know, to to really be able to empathise mm. with the athletes that were out there, whether they won a medal or or, or lost a medal. Mm. But now, us as a team, we're we're back on track and we've got original players. We've got a development team now, and we've got lots of young players. But what we do have now are some of the original ladies coming back to join us again i've gone through a whole circle i've at, at 2012 i was vice captain then i've been captain for the last six years mm. um i've just passed the mantle across to my vice captain and now i'm more of a mentor role but a player so yeah i've i've luckily chosen a sport where age isn't a problem there's a there's a woman that plays on the slovenian team and i think she's the age of my mother wow. at the moment so the exciting thing is there yeah, we're Fingers crossed, back on route to try and get to Tokyo in 2020. We have quite a few small competitions coming up, but the big one for us in July is in Budapest, and that's Europeans, and that's where we need to qualify mm. for Tokyo, which is
0: only next. Year. I know it's crazy how quickly it's come around. You mentioned about funding, and it's something that I am really interested in in terms of you know what what sports get different funding, and particularly Paralympic sports yeah. getting funding. Has that been a real challenge for you and, and your teammates?
1: Yes, it has been frustrating. And it's that old catch-22 situation. So it's, sorry, you're not getting the funding because your world rankings has gone down by a couple. Well, how can we get the world ranking to go back up if we haven't got money to, to pay our athletes? So we're competing against other sports. We've had quite a few go off to para canoe. You know, they're offered... Quite a substantial salary for yeah. a year mm. to be involved. We we cannot compete with that. No. So it's the love of the sport. It's yeah. it's the love of us. <laughs> you know, I do think us as a team of we course. are quite unique. But a lot of you are doing full time jobs at the same time. Yes. Oh yeah yeah yeah. And it's 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 that balance. And obviously because we have got the Europeans, you know, we've got every single weekend we're training now, as well as in the week. Mm. And that toughness, that 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 rebalancing. Mm. You know, the memories are. A coming back of, mm. of of how how tough it can be, and obviously, it's mm. retaining players as well, and saying that you know we might not be able to pay you, but we do have the. I mean, we, you know, I do think we're very unique as a team and in individuals mm. on it. I think it's a very unique sport. It's an amazing sport. Yeah, but sometimes when you've got other sports that saying we'll offer you this x amount of pounds and we're saying come and play with us because we're a great bunch of people.
0: Well, hopefully, doesn't if, yeah. really, you know. Hopefully um, if there are people listening to this oh, that might be interested. Yeah, to take it no, up.
1: if you if you fancy doing a very dynamic competitive <laughs> Sport that is like no other. There are similarities to standing volleyball, but it's not. It's a quite a liberating sport. You don't have to be disabled to, to play it. It's a very inclusive sport. You know, mm. we play many um people that aren't disabled, mm. many people that are men. We just come back from a competition in Norway. You can't really see, but I'm about five foot three, and um, I was up against a guy that was, you know, laughing at me literally because he was like six foot six. He was blocking me at the net, but this is why we need to play yeah. people like that because yeah, um we need to learn from it so i'd love to know what your
0: proudest achievement is to
1: date oh well i think it's got to be having having my son you yeah. know there's different things in life sport is obviously you know sport healed me in order to have my son mm. i believe because again in the early days doctors didn't know whether the impact no. of the bomb and things mm. like that, that that whether whether we could conceive words can't describe what what he gives gives to us gives to me every 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 day mm. and you to him yeah yeah i suppose so. <laughs> not this morning <laughs> i've got to go to work but everyone everyone can uh, can sympathize with that but having the opportunities that i have had you know people people sort of say to me if you had a time machine would you would you go back to the 6th of july mm. would you go back to that morning would you I've not hit that snooze button. And I don't know whether I would go back. I look at my short legs sometimes and think, oh, it'd be be nice to put a pair of heels on. Then I look at people struggling in them and I'm like, no. Actually, I don't miss heels. That's one thing I don't miss. But, you know, I just think who I am now and what I've learned and the people that I've met and the amazing people that I've met, the inspirational people, whether that is athletes whether that is fellow patients in hospital whether that is oscar's friends or you know all those things all those experiences i've experienced and the lessons i've learned i don't think i would go back life does throw things at you and it can be a roller coaster you know ups and downs huge ups and downs but It's all about belief. It's all about belief and it's all about support. And what I've learned is it's not what happens, it's the way that we deal with it and um, having that belief. My last two questions.
0: The first is, I would love to know what strength looks like to you.
1: Strength is that love, support and belief. That's what strength is. That's looking into someone's eyes, whether that's... A stranger, your family, your friends, having that deep understanding. Strength is my husband. Strength is my mum and dad. Strength is Oscar. But it's that, it's that belief that things can get better. And, and there's no doubt, there's no doubt that also strength is that number seven on my shirt on what that represents. And that represents the 52 people that died mm-hmm. that day. And I know it sound, might sound cheesy, and, and, but I, I think of them every day and they give me something every day and in the beginning I used to feel really selfish about that and I didn't used to like telling people that that these poor people that lost their lives they've given me something even though I'm here now that that should be the other way around really and I felt quite selfish in the beginning thinking that yeah strength is love it's belief it's support it's unconditional that's what it is and finally, I don't
0: know if you ha- you could choose one, because there just seem to be so many incredible people in your life. Alice, you're being quite unfair. No? I know, I know, I'm so sorry. She's but- being quite unfair. <laughs> if you had to pick one, who in your life demonstrates strength the most?
1: I can't no. really pick one. That's obviously... It's all my family. Can you say yourself as well? Because I- <laughs> well, no, I don't. I'm just me. I, I just think I'm just I'm, I'm I'm just me. But yeah, I suppose I do have a bit of strength in me. But I think that's come from other people mm. as well. Has come from my family. You know, definitely my mum is a is a is yeah. a is a real inspiration as well as my mom. dad's. But people say to me, you know, who is your inspiration? They're expecting me to say some sort of cool sports person. It's like actually. No, it's it's my teammates or it's my physio mm. who taught me to walk. Mm. Maggie, she's my inspiration. You know, Jeanette, mm. you know, my twin that we spent, you know. All those people, all those people give you something, something unique, a strength mm. that you, you rely on. And there's no question at all that... Of course I'm here because of what I've done, but there's no question at all that I would not be sitting here if it wasn't for the love and the support mm. and the belief mm. from my family and friends. And if there's there's one thing from this podcast that I might be rambling on, but if there's one thing that people take from this, it is that belief. Yeah. That belief that anything, anything is possible mm. And again, I know it might sound cheesy, but I truly, truly believe that. Mm. And I truly believe that I wouldn't be sitting here now if Mm. if I hadn't believed that. Yeah. Now, I have to wrap up. I'm really sad about wrapping
0: up, but... You have been incredible. I've I've had to hold back the tears both from laughing and from crying. But I have really never met anyone as exceptional as you and I truly mean that. And it was an actual honour, a, a total honour to have you here and to interview you for the podcast and I really am so grateful. So thank you so, so much. And yeah, I wish you good luck for your journey to Tokyo. Thank you. Thank you ever so much. And you're making me cry now. <laughs> <laughs> like. Thank you so much. Thank you. We all know how much powerful quotes can inspire us. So I've selected some of my favorite quotes from women who've inspired me to be your daily mantra through to the next episode. This week's quote comes from American racing driver, Danica Patrick. She said, take those chances and you can achieve greatness. Whereas if you go conservative, you'll never know. I truly believe what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Even if you fail, learning and moving on is sometimes the best thing. Thank you so much for tuning in to Give Me Strength. Please do join us next week for more incredible guests. In the meantime, I would love it if you could take a moment to rate and review this podcast. And don't forget to subscribe if you want to be the first to listen to our brand new episode every Wednesday.